Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 78, The Apollo 1 Fire. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be just introducing the episode today. If you're familiar with us, this is where we bring in scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information about what's going on right here at NASA. We recently revisited Apollo 8 in celebration of the mission's 50th anniversary. And this week at NASA, we celebrate our Day of Remembrance, where we recognize the sacrifices of the brave astronauts of Apollo 1, Challenger, and Columbia, all who gave their lives on the quest to explore the cosmos and reveal the unknown. So on today's episode, we go back to January 2017, where we held a panel in recognition of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 1. Ed White, Gus Grissom, and Roger Chaffee lost their lives in a fire during a plugs-out test of the Apollo capsule on January 27, 1967, setting the course for correcting many of the flaws of the vehicle that were vital to the successful landing on the moon by the end of the decade. For the panel, we brought in some expert guests from the Apollo program to reveal some of the decisions and milestones that were learned from this tragedy. Taking the stage were astronaut Walt Cunningham, project engineer Gary Johnson, and flight director Glenn Lunny. Astronaut Frank Borman joined by video. The event was moderated by active astronaut Nicole Mann. Director and deputy director of the Johnson Space Center at the time, Ellen Ochoa and Mark Geyer, respectively, gave opening remarks and go into greater detail about the esteemed panelists. In recognition of our Day of Remembrance, and with the 50th anniversary of the Apollo missions recently passed and still to come, we bring you some of the legends of NASA that helped us to land on the moon today. On Houston, we have a podcast. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit by circuit red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. I'd like to welcome everybody today to the Day of Remembrance activities. I'm really pleased that we have a lot of special guests with us here today, including family members of crew members. Um, I'm not going to be able to call out everybody by name right now, but I did want to point out that we are fortunate to have uh, several of our former JSC Center directors here today. We have Mike Coates, B. Cowell, George Abbey, Carolyn Huntoon, and Jerry Griffin. And if you wouldn't mind, stand so we can acknowledge their presence here today. So as a reminder, after this panel, we invite you all to come out to the Astronaut Memorial Grove, where we will be laying flowers um, at the trees of all of the members of the Apollo 1, Challenger, and Columbia crews. And then we're going to be following that with a tree planting for astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who passed away last year. And I do also want to acknowledge some other great losses that we've had recently, John Glenn, Piers Sellers, and Gene Cernan. And I think you all are aware uh, that Gene Cernan's memorial is in downtown Houston this afternoon, and that will be shown on NASA TV. So I hope you will, you will fall in for that. And so now I'd like to introduce our Deputy Center Director, Mark Geyer, who will start off our Apollo 1 Lessons and Legacies panel. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for coming. You know, we have we have days of remembrance not just to honor the heroes that made the ultimate sacrifice for the country, but also rededicate ourselves to remembering the lessons from these accidents. Um, our panel is focused on the lessons of Apollo 1, but before I started, I wanted to ask, if you, if you worked on Apollo program, would you stand up, please? I'd just like to recognize those that worked great. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for both for your great work and also for coming out today. Um, you know, I wouldn't be at NASA without what you did. So I want to thank you very much. I also wanted to do one other thing. If you, if you came to NASA after 2003, in other words, you started working here after 2003, would you stand quickly? After 2003. Yeah. So, all right. Thank you. So... 
the reason I did that is there are a significant number of folks that work at the Johnson Space Center that have arrived here since our last accident, right, since Columbia. So these lesson learns uh, opportunities are really, really important to hear from the folks uh, who actually did the hard work uh, and learned the lessons, and it's really invaluable. Um, so 50 years ago, on January 27, 1967, the crew of Apollo 1 was performing a checkout test in the Apollo 1 capsule at the launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center. Just for a little context, the last Gemini mission uh, had been completed just two months earlier, just two months earlier. Uh, NASA had a little less now than three years to land a man on the moon before the end of the decade, and yet not a single manned Apollo flight had been flown. Uh, as those of us that have worked on commercial crew in Orion, we know that with many first flights of a system, there were on Apollo several technical issues and schedule delays, so a lot of stress. Um, this particular test that happened on this day was called a plugs out test, and it was conducted prior to flight uh, to verify and demonstrate that the space vehicle ground support equipment, procedures, personnel were all ready for flight operations. Some of the test things were the first time that they had been done. Now, although the crew was in their suits, in the capsule, and in a pressurized pure oxygen environment, the test was not classified as hazardous at that time, because at that time, the test only tests that included fueled vehicles, hypergolic propellants, cryogenic systems, high pressure tanks, live pyrotechnics, or altitude chamber tests were classified as hazardous. Um, at 6.31 Eastern, a fire started in the cabin. Uh, within 15 seconds, the capsule ruptured. Uh, it took the ground crew a full five minutes uh, to open the three, to get through the three hatches to reach the interior of the crew module. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Virgil Gruss Grissom, Lieutenant Colonel Ed White II, and Lieutenant Commander Roger Chaffee all perished as the fire consumed the interior of the Apollo capsule. Uh, in the midst of the race to the moon, the Apollo program would not fly again for 21 months. Although the board was not able to determine conclusively the specific initiator of the Apollo 1 fire, it did identify the conditions that led to the disaster. They specified the conditions as followed. One, a sealed cabin pressurized with an oxygen atmosphere. Two, an extensive distribution of combustible materials in the cabin. Three, vulnerable wiring carrying spacecraft power. Four, vul vulnerable plumbing carrying a combustible and corrosive coolant. Five, inadequate provisions for the crew to escape. Six, inadequate provisions for the rescue or medical assistance. So in 67, although I don't feel uh, that old, I was only eight years old in 1967. But I remember uh, watching TV with my dad when the screen came up and said that we interrupt this programming and mentioned that something horrible had happened at the Cape. So I remember that very clearly. You know, we have a very difficult job an important job here at JSC and at NASA that in the context of an inherently risky endeavor, we strive to make space travel reasonably safe. I want to thank again these panel members and also Frank Borman. Frank Borman could not come here, but he was interviewed, and you'll see him on the video. So I want to thank him for his time as well. I want to thank them to remind us of the Apollo 1 lessons so that we continue, we can continue to do the work that this country has charged us to do. So let me start by introducing uh, a little really quick about uh, background on some of the panel members. So first of all, um, basically moderating our panel is Nicole Mann. And Nicole, of course, Lieutenant Colonel Nicole Mann uh, is uh, in the U.S. Marine Corps, began her flying career as a naval aviator in using or uh, flying FAA-18s. Uh, her combat experience includes missions in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom. And she was selected as an astronaut in 2013. Um, Frank Borman, as I mentioned again, will be on video. You'll see that, of course, Frank was a test pilot, fighter pilot, and flight instructor prior to becoming an astronaut. And a, Borman flew uh, uh, Gemini, he, he, excuse me, he commanded Apollo 8, as we all know. He also served as a member of the Apollo 1 investigation team. Uh, Colonel Walt Cunningham, also here today, began flying night fighters in 1954 for the Marine Corps in Korea. Uh, he was a backup crew for Apollo 1, and he served and flew as a pilot on Apollo 7, which was the next flight. Gary Johnson uh, managed the, the sequential subsystem for Apollo and Skylab. 
command service module and Apollo lunar module. He was an electrical power system console operator and mission control at the time of the accident. Uh, Glenn Lunny was uh, a member of the space task, space task group in 1959 and served a flight dynamics officer for the Mercury flights. He was a flight director for most of the Gemini and Apollo flights, including Apollo 7 and 8. So, Nicole, to you. Thank you. Gentlemen, it is an honor to be here, and thank you for joining us. We'll jump right into the questions. The first for you, Glenn. What were the greatest challenges facing you and other members of the development team in the period leading up to Apollo 1? Uh, the environment we had was that uh, we were recovering from the uh, fire, uh, and many of our operators, uh, especially the people who worked on the command service module systems, were tied up with that. So they were not only getting ready to do a flight control job on the upcoming flight, but they were actively involved in all of the things that were going on uh, in the spacecraft and so on. Uh, and uh, the other thing that we were involved in was the first of a series, the first of Apollo manned uh, flight, which required a lot of extra special attention in the sense that a lot of, all of us on the team were coming up to the fact that uh, the vehicle was manned. We'd flown a couple of unmanned ones by this time, uh, but um, the making it manned would be different for us. So people were paying attention to that and uh, uh, polishing their skills with respect to what we might have to do during the flight. And for you, Walt, how was the Apollo 1 test uh, mishap different from some of the other ground tests that you participated in, and were there any specific safety concerns? Looking back at it, I can't put my finger on a specific uh, concern, although we had a lot of, con lot of concerns, small ones at the time. But uh, with the attitude of our flight crews and, uh, and what we thought about flying, we would not have flown if we hadn't thought we could overcome what it was. And uh, it became tougher and tougher to get fixes on those things that we were concerned about because of the schedule you're talking about. There was not a lot of... Uh, excess time trying to get to the moon before the end of that decade. And so uh, for this particular test, I don't think we had any special concern about, you know, the, the oxygen or the, uh, the test. And we had our crew, Wally Shaw, Don Isley and I, we had performed the same test the night before, but we did not have the plugs out, so we had external power. The hatch was open, and uh, there was absolutely no problem. It took us about 15 minutes. So the next day, we were all waiting to fly home together. Uh, we were going to have a weekend off. There was still, that was when they were scheduling the launch at the end of the month of January there, you know, end of February. And uh, we never expected it to be going then anyway. We knew there were going to be some problems that were going to uh, overcome that uh, going to cause it to slip and the crew could be better trained to do that. Thank you very much. For the next question, we had a chance to talk to Frank Borman, and so we'll start out with his response. Tell us about the Apollo 1 accident investigation process. Well, the, uh, the great service that uh, Administrator Jim Webb did was to convince the president that uh, NASA could investigate itself. And as a result of that, uh, he appointed a committee headed by Dr. Floyd Thompson, who was the head of Langley uh, Research Center, NASA Center, and uh, I don't know, 10 or 11 other people. I happen to be a member of it. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure that any of, any of the others are still alive. <laughs> it's been so long ago. But in any event, uh, it was a... Uh, a massive effort to get to the bottom of what happened and then correct it. And I'm very proud of the work that the committee did. It was scathing in, in some of its remarks about NASA and about North America and the contractor for Apollo. But out of it came, I think, a, uh, a, a, a path toward a, uh, a, a better spacecraft. Yes, well. I would like to add that uh, Frank was uh, pretty much in charge with the investigation afterwards. I, I worked on the investigation for maybe four weeks. Frank stayed on it, and I think he did an amazingly 
good job. Uh, looking at possible changes, the relationship between us and the contractor, the relationship between NASA and the contractor, and uh, Frank was, uh, in my opinion, was the key to having such a perfect solution after that. Thank you. And do you, any of you have anything to add on what some of those changes were that took place and how we could implement some of those lessons learned today? Uh, some of the, one of the big factors uh, was, of course, that uh, the unprotected wiring, it turns out in those days uh, we had a lot of the wiring uh, going across the floors and uh, tied together with uh, binders, but during ground checkout they only had a uh, foam covers is all they used to protect it from the crew at the time. And the Teflon wiring we used was susceptible to cold flow. Uh, the insulation was, and if you had any out physical outside pressure on it, it would deform and, uh, and so forth. And uh, so one of the, that was big, one of the big things we didn't realize is in Gemini and Mercury, even though those were pure oxygen environment, the crew was pretty well isolated from making any contact with the uh, spacecraft wiring and so forth. So this is the first spacecraft that you had that situation. And, uh, and I was over there. In those days also, I might point out that uh, the mission of the engineering support was actually alongside the flight controllers in those days. We didn't have a mission evaluation room. So you sat alongside the flight controller, and on that particular day uh, at five o'clock, most of the flight control team had left. So I was the only one on the ECS con uh, EPS console uh, in the SSR, and Mort Silver was on the uh, North American flight controller on the ECS console. And uh, then uh, and Dr. Kraft was uh, one of the few that were outside, and. And of course, we were told right away not to, uh, uh, when, the, when, the, when it happened, uh, to lock all the doors. And we weren't allowed to call, make any calls except one call to our wife to tell them that we wouldn't be home. And Chris Kraft came back in the SSR and told us uh, be sure to be reviewing the data and going through it. We're going to be going over this all night long. We're going to do playbacks and so forth. I did make a note that. At the time, the crew reported a fire. Uh, we had a short on main bus A and B. Uh, and so I realized it must be some diode load in the spacecraft. So right away afterwards, uh, when I went back to the office the next day, I spent time uh, finding out where all our diode loads were. And then uh, three or four days later, I was sent down for the investigation to go through the spacecraft. and. Uh, Turns out that one of those diode loads was underneath the ECS bay, and studying the, uh, it had a Teflon overwrap over it, and this is a lower area just below the uh, commander's couch that went over the uh, plumbing and underneath the ECS door, and uh, and, I, and there was the main bus A and B power diode to the ECS instrumentation that was in that. It turns out that the, uh, you know, when you're in there looking at the vehicle afterwards, that whole area was gone because that was the hottest part of the fire. Metal and everything was gone. So there wasn't physically anything to see. So we had to go back and study closeout photographs. I noticed on the closeout photographs, the Teflon had slipped down. And um, so the wiring was exposed to any damage if the crew had to put their crew to, uh, foot down or so forth. The uh, the other thing about the uh, lessons learned that came out of that in regards to the wiring, there's a lot of things about the hatch and the O2. One thing you don't hear mentioned, however, is the center put out this directive that any future uh, manned spacecraft uh, that's managed by the Johnson Space Center or the Manned Spacecraft Center at that time, we were going to conduct a management walkthrough inspection which was a chance for all the engineers from NASA or top managers, top designers, along with the uh, North American or Rockwell designers to actually go through and inspect the spacecraft, particularly for their areas. For example, I was doing it for the wiring. And you did it at a time before the closeout photo, before closeouts were done. 
and before it shipped to the Cape. So at that time, we were able to confirm that the metal covers, that was one of the major design changes, was the fact that metal covers were placed over all the wiring so there's no way you could damage the wiring or plumbing. And they had designed a hard flooring that could be removed for the workmen. So when you went in to work on the spacecraft and do things, you had this hard covering that was, uh, could be taken out to further protect the vehicle and so forth. And it became important. Uh, and so we did those inspections on every spacecraft. Yes, well. <clears throat> I'd like to add one of the factors that people don't talk about too much here, but you did mention the 100% the, uh, oxygen. People, pilots, have operated with 100% oxygen many, many times over, over many years in their oxygen mass. Mercury and Gemini had all flown to the 100% oxygen. That wasn't the real uh, problem here with the fire. Uh, everything burns much worse in 100% oxygen. But that particular test, uh, they had been operating on the ground with the hatch closed. It was a 16 PSI, I believe, 15.8 PSI, 100% oxygen. And it was about a 15-minute test, but they had gotten in the spacecraft about, I think, about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And we were all waiting to fly back together. And it kept dragging on, dragging on, 100% oxygen, soaking up anything that was in, in that spacecraft. So at 16 PSI, uh, that was a big difference. Uh, and that's why the fire happened so fast, because everything was saturated and just burned it up like that. And one of the fixes then, of course, uh, we ended up trying to not operate on 100% on uh, oxygen. So I think when we flew on Apollo 7, it was about, uh, I think about 60% of the atmosphere inside on the ground was 100% was oxygen. And let's talk more about some of those safety changes that were put into place. We'll start off with Frank on this next question. What were the safety process changes after Apollo 1, and how were they helpful to the success of the rest of the Apollo program? Well, there were, there, were, there were an enormous number of changes uh, after the fire, uh, and the, uh, the committee recommended some. A lot of them were in management. Uh, the Apollo program at, Na at NASA Johnson uh, was, was sort of an anomaly because uh, Joe Shea, who was the manager, project manager for Apollo, reported to Washington, and he did not involve the resources uh, that existed at Johnson the way he should have. He, he, uh, he didn't keep Dr. Gilruth, who was the, the center director, uh, informed as he should have. And uh, it, it was almost as if the Apollo cadre thought, well, we know best. We're, we're a little bit better than everybody else. And so we don't really, we're not really interested in what happened in Gemini because, uh, you know, we're going to do a much, much better job. I, that was as much a part of the problem as anything in my, in my mind. And Glenn, what are your thoughts about these safety process changes? Uh, I was a young foot soldier when Apollo came along. And uh, I, I must admit that as I gradually got a sense of what was going on in the Apollo program, it was as if after flying Mercury and Gemini with a relatively small uh, contingent of people, uh, we've got into Apollo, and it was like we had a national mobilization going on. It was big, everything was big. There were contractors for everything, and it was, you might say, uh, you know, overly uh, uh, block diagrammed in terms of the organization. It just, just too many people, to, uh, and there was a lot of overlap with it, and it, uh, it scared people. Um, one of the stories that I have from Chris Kraft, just to give you an idea of what things were like at the time, uh, somewhere in the early 60s, uh, Dr. Giruth asked Chris to go out to the uh, uh, Rockwell, to what was uh, the Rockwell plant, uh, Rockwell in modern terms, uh, North American at that time. And uh, when Chris got out there, he attended a meeting that was conducted by the program manager for Rockwell, North American, I keep calling them, uh, and, um, and uh, uh, for NASA. And uh, it was astounding to Chris. It was a, a full-throated argument that went on for the whole meeting, conducted uh, not in English but in a foul language that uh, 
did not help the situation. And uh, it was uh, kind of scary. And the en environment was such that there was a lot of that going on. And uh, actually, in my view, uh, it changed after the fire. It changed some as we went along, but it changed dramatically after the fire. Uh, George Lowe emerged as the program manager. Bob Gilruth was put back into the loop. He had been, he had been ignored and pushed aside uh, during the run-up to the uh, accident in the Apollo circles. And uh, there was an attitude that we're from Washington and we know better. And uh, uh, we just finished the Mercury project and the Gemini project. And, and then we were faced with entering this world where you know, the, the employees and the contractors were n measured in the multi-thousands of people. And uh, so it took a little getting used to on our part. Uh, but uh, Bob Giroud suggested George Lowe as the project manager after Joe, uh, Joe Shea resigned. Uh, and uh, that was a stroke of genius. I think even today, looking back, most people who were involved would say that George Lowe brought the program out of despair and, and brought it into the sunlight. Uh, uh, it, this, this happened uh, oh, five plus years, almost six years, the accident did, uh, after uh, John, President John Kennedy's speech starting Apollo. And that's a long time to be messing around with a clunky organizational problem. And, uh, and it took the fire to straighten it out. And once done with, uh, once changed over to George, and uh, by the way, uh, George Lowe represented this center, as uh, the Manned Spacecraft Center, to the, uh, uh, to the uh, program in Washington. And um, he, was, uh, he was responsible for the spacecraft itself, both of them, and for all the other associated things associated with flying flight ops and uh, the crew ops. So looking back on it, I would say that uh, George Lowe came along uh, as a savior. Uh, Bob Gilruth was reinstated. Bob had a great deal of experience. He wasn't popular with the new people because he was not flamboyant <laughs> enough. Uh, and uh, he, but he was sound as the devil. And uh, as a matter of fact, when they turned to him, after the fire, he turned around and suggested George Lowe as the program manager. And from then on, it went fine. I mean, within two years, we flew Apollo 7 and Apollo 8, a hallmark of a decision that George Lowe pushed back in uh, uh, the time. Uh, and it was, quite a, it was quite a process to see. We came out of Gemini. We knew all the things that we had to learn coming out of Gemini. We were ready to fly, and then we had to go on hold while we recovered from this accident, uh, both physically, safety, and emotionally for all the people involved. Uh, but God bless us. If there's a message in that is uh, the people and who they are and how they are are probably as significant as all of the mechanics of our business. Uh, we don't really have a process in place for Evaluating that, it's, it's not, you know, I know we have performance appraisals, et cetera, and, but, but it's interesting if when you look at it for NASA who has process for everything, we don't have a process to be sure we got all the right people in place and that they're staying on track. Maybe we ought to have such a thing, I don't know. Uh, That's a great point with the people and specifically the contractors. I know, Walt, you spent a lot of time working with the contractors. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship and how you develop that? And maybe some advice you have on how to resolve uh, points of dispute. Well, I'm not sure that anybody pays attention to any advice I, I might say. <laughs> but my analysis is that one of the major improvements after the Apollo 1 fire was the change in the relationship between the users and the contractors that were doing it. Uh, I worked on that, what you would call Block 1 spacecraft uh, for probably a year and spent a lot of time out with the contractor and mostly the contractor was able to keep control. It was before the people that, uh, that you mentioned uh, were getting involved. 
And so we had to live with a lot of things that we tried to change on it. <clears throat> and then after the fire, uh, the whole attitude, it didn't change uh, instantly, incidentally, because Rockwell, North American, uh, they still at the time wanted to maintain their control over what was going on. They designed many, many good airplanes and then they'd just stick a test pilot in and he'd have to go you know, fly that particular airplane. Uh, but from that time on, when changes came up, uh, NASA had a lot more say-so on it. And so at the time, uh, as astronauts, we were out there on the flight crew and we were living with the design of this. Uh, the, the vehicle was not just something you could go and uh, climb into and go fly. So we're still designing it and uh, going through the testing installation, installation of uh, various pieces. And I'll never forget there was one time when uh, the schedule kept slipping. Look at 21 months that wasn't planned to be involved in there. The schedule kept slipping. And the head of, Na of the North American at the time, uh, he was uh, complaining to uh, Dr. Gilruth. And he said at the time that uh, uh, the schedule keeps slipping and you've got these guys out here and they keep talking about various changes. Uh, the astronauts are, are living with us here and uh, they're slowing us down a lot. So Bob Gilruth replied, he says, well, that's okay. We're not charging you for their time. <laughs> I never forget that. <laughs> Thank you, sir. And you mentioned oh. schedule and the pressure of schedule. Let's go to Frank for this uh, next question. And it's, did the schedule pressure of trying to get to the moon by the end of the decade contribute to the Apollo 1 accident? <clears throat> you know, I don't, I, I'm a firm believer in, in schedules and I think President Kennedy not only did a, a very courageous thing when he announced we were going to the moon and back, but he also, I think, did a very smart thing when he put a time limit on it. The, uh, the fact that there's a, uh, a requirement to get things done is an important, an important milestone in any. Gentlemen, One thing I might thoughts. mention is uh, Gilruth uh, also did a major organizational change within the, uh, the reliability and quality assurance organizations reported up through the uh, Apollo program office. And so one of the major things Gilruth did is reorganize such that the reliability and quality assurance and safety function reported directly to the center director. And so the, for the first time you had that organization not reporting up through the program office, but it reported directly to center director. It turns out the manned spacecraft center was the only center that did that, uh, the human spaceflight centers. And I might just quickly point out that that didn't change till Challenger happened because up until the time of Challenger, the other centers, the SR and QA function at headquarters and some other places was a part of the chief engineer's office. And then after Challenger, uh, the other organizations, headquarters and the other organizations were d required to uh, organize like the Johnson Space Center had done where the SR and QA organization was independent of the program and reported up through the uh, center director. Thank you. I may have uh, mentioned that uh, after the Apollo 1 fire, we ended up with, I think, 1,040 changes in the spacecraft. Well, some of those changes, in fact, probably a good handful of those changes, had to do with the hardware and avoiding as best you could the circumstances where you would have a fire. But with that kind of delay and that kind of a fix, we began to get many, many more operational changes or little hardware things or even like uh, controls around the switches and things like this because of the time. And on the schedule delay, uh, keep in mind we were flying a mission every two months, brand new spacecraft, and I can tell you that the general view in the astronaut office is we we're going to lose at least one of those. And this was even after uh, the Apollo 1 fire. Expected probably lose one of those someplace, somehow, uh, and actually did not. Uh, Apollo 13 came close, but uh, the performance was unbelievable to be able to operate every two months, uh, brand new vehicle, lunar module, command module. Uh, I was very impressed with that. So you have a lot of changes taking place. You have schedule pressures. Glenn, how did you 
face the challenges of getting your mission control team ready for the first Apollo flights? We had uh, this, the set of players that were uh, involved in the command service module had all worked on Gemini also. And uh, when we came, when we got finished with the Gemini program, we had done everything that we could, could in Earth orbit. For example, we had 10 rendezvous, uh, primary rendezvous from liftoff from the ground, but also with re-rendezvous. So we had an experience with rendezvous that was that really made us feel like we could handle anything that came along in, in the pri and where we would have to modify the trajectory or the path of the vehicle, which of course Apollo to the moon was full of. Uh, and uh, people were comfortable that, that they knew how to do that and could do it well. So that served us in very good stead. And the last problem we dealt with on uh, Gemini that uh, was pending success pending its success was EVA. Buzz Aldrin is here in the front row, and Buzz was uh, instrumental in some of the changes that we installed uh, for the last EVA. We, we finally realized we needed a lot of handholds and footholds. Uh, we needed a better way to train. We invented a water tank of, of some smaller size than the present one uh, to, to, uh, to help with that. and. Uh, that, that set, set us on after Apollo 12, which was a complete success in that regard, in the EVA regard. Um, we were on the path to uh, get on with Apollo, and I must admit, we came out of Gemini raring to go. Both the planners and the flight crews and the, and the ground crews, the flight controllers and the control center. Uh, there was a lot of confidence uh, in that group, and uh, we just couldn't wait to get our hands on the Apollo hardware, and then of course we had a long delay in terms of the recovery from the space uh, from the uh, fire. I would say one more thing about that, which I've said to people occasionally. Uh, there was a lot of movement in Washington D.C. as to whether we ought to, they ought to cancel the Apollo program at that point, uh, and uh, that talk finally got. Uh, put to bed, and by the way, Frank Morgan, Mormon, uh, Frank Borman had a lot to do with quieting that. Uh, however, I, I think to myself, what would have happened had we canceled Apollo? This is as a future lesson. Uh, how would we feel about our country and about the space program? I would submit it would feel like we really screwed up. I mean, you can't take it any other way, uh, and it, it, although decisions are difficult, they have to be made and sometimes they're tough, uh, but nevertheless, a positive decision on going forward with Apollo was one heck of a lot better than a decision to cancel it. Absolutely. You know, beating the Russians had a fallout that I think has benefited us for you know, 30, 40 years since that time. And I'd like to see us get back onto the situation where we can continue to be better in space than the Russians so we don't have to depend on them to get up and back. Can we all agree with you, Walt? Now, Walt, from a crew perspective, with any new vehicle, you're going to have immature training programs. Can you talk about how you trained for those first flights and how important it was to be involved in the development process? It's probably a little hard with today's standards to talk about how we trained for that Apollo 7 mission because <clears throat> Apollo 1 was going to fly. We were just developing simulators. We had uh, uh, for our crew, and after we uh, after they canceled Apollo 2, we became backup for Apollo 1. And as the backup, we didn't get hardly any simulator time because there was not a lot available, and the the prime crew was not getting enough simulator time as well. So uh, as, we, uh, as we moved forward on that, uh, we, excuse me, what was the point of your question? How you trained specifically yeah, for those how first flights. How we trained spe specifically for it. So we ended up having to do whatever we could in the way of getting time. That's why we spent a lot of time at the contractors, because we were there installing the equipment and uh, testing out it. You saw Frank Borman there. He and I spent uh, many, many nights sleeping in the... Uh, installation in the factory down there so if they got something in they were going to then start checking out 
we'd get a call, and Frank, Frank and I would go down and, and go through that uh, on it, on developing the hardware to do that. Uh, today, usually all that hardware is already done. You don't get a chance to have an input on it. And we eventually we got simulators, and we started spending some time down at the uh, Cape for the simulators. Uh, and I've read several things lately that they talk about how, uh, our simulator time. They probably don't know that I think the total we had was uh, our whole crew was like about 75 or 80 hours in the simulator before we got to fly. But we did have a lot of time checking out hardware. And Wonderful, thank you. And for the next question, we'll start with Frank. What enabled you to make decisions quickly and recover so rapidly from the Apollo 1 accident? Well, as I said, it was the uh, management change where George Lowe was put in as manager. And uh, another a good example, another giant that's still alive is Chris Kraft. Uh, he was put in charge, George put him in charge of a, a modern, or what should I say, un, unblocking the development of the software. And he set up a change board for software, much as George had set up a, a, chaf, a change board for the program, for the Apollo program. And he unblocked it in about a month. So uh, the basic changes were, were human. Gary, do you have anything to add on how we can make decisions quickly in this environment? Well, one thing back then, uh, the management was willing to provide a lot of responsibility to young engineers. And uh, as been mentioned uh, already, we had a lot better relationship working with our contractors. And so uh, NASA engine project engineers were actually involved in uh, not only running tests and monitoring tests, but also uh, actually involved in uh, developing the tests. And there was a lot more willingness on the contractor's point uh, to accept our uh, recommendations and what we were doing. And uh, we tended to work a lot better with our contractor counterpart as a, actually as a team member at that time. So even though we did still have the responsibility to provide the independent assessment of their work, at the same time we tried to jointly solve the problems together with them. And that, uh, so it's a people on people relationship that had to be built. Yeah. And on the lines of solving those problems, we'll go to Frank for this next question. How did you decide which changes or safety upgrades were important enough to make before the first flight? Well, as usual in, a, in any great endeavor, it always boiled down to a, a single human being that made a difference. And in, in, uh, in the case of the Apollo, the person in my mind that made that difference was George Lowe. He became the Apollo program manager after Joe Shea and he immediately incorporated all the resources at NASA Johnson, all the resources across the board into the uh, re-engineering effort. He ran what was called the Change Control Board. Uh, and it met, uh, I don't know, bi-weekly or weekly, I, I can't remember now. But uh, anybody that wanted to make a change in the uh, Apollo program had to present that engineering proposal to the board. And then all of the, uh, the center uh, project men and directors, Max Faget, Deke Slayton, and all of them were sitting there, and, uh, and then they would recommend yes or no, and then George Lowe would make the final decision. Gentlemen, what are your thoughts on which safety upgrades to make? Well, I think, I think we had to deal with the, uh, the environment, the oxygen environment in the spacecraft, uh, and uh, and that got done in a reasonable way, finally. Uh, we, we didn't redo the whole spacecraft, but we operated a little bit differently in terms of, uh, of uh, not such a high pressure of uh, oxygen on the pad. Uh, in addition to that, uh, I, w I would say that I was impressed with how the contractor and the uh, and the NASA JSC, at least, uh, operated then from about the fire on, in, I guess, in, in terms of things that you could see. But uh, I had seen it get to the point where the fellow who was doing most of the management of uh, Rockwell in, in uh, space shuttle times uh, and Chris Kraft were like brothers. Uh, you couldn't get them apart. And uh, they used each other's organization uh, to keep 
their own organizations honest. In other words, if, if uh, Rockwell felt very, very strongly about something that the JSE people didn't, uh, that got a fair hearing, uh, and vice versa also. So that uh, uh, Chris and George Jeffs had a uh, wonderful relationship that served the uh, that served this program very well. We'd come a long way from having only the language foul uh, be uh, the uh, the language in use to the point where uh, it was very cooperative and it was very helpful and it was very reinforcing. It was a wonderful thing to watch. It really was. People were doing things for the best interest of the program, and uh, you had to admire that and uh, believe that that would carry us through. Thank you. And is there still anything that any of you would have done dif differently during the Apollo 1 or any of the Apollo time frame and any advice you have for those of us working on Orion commercial crew SLS? Well, uh, one thing is try to work to, as a team. Uh, if you're responsible for a particular system or so forth, be sure and work closely with your flight control counterpart, your contractor, uh, individual that's involved in that subsystem, your SR and QA and safety engineer that are involved, and work together the team to try to make your system the best it can be, making sure you don't have the single point failures there for crew safety, and being able to not only that, but know from the flight ops folk, your counterpart in flight ops, the, how you're going to be operating that system. The uh, safety engineer will be identifying to you what the hazards are and you work together to make sure in your subsystem that those hazards are controlled or mitigated. And if there's an ops control, you make sure that that's finally checked to be appropriate and everything. So it, once again, it's a, it's a team effort and it's an individual effort. But even going down to the smallest level uh, as a little subsystem, you ought to be working as a team with your group and closely working together. Well, I, <clears throat> I think the situation has changed significantly today. Uh, I, of course, the uh, crewmen on board the International Space Station, they. I assume that many of them have something to do with uh, the design of the particular experiments that they're going to be operating. But it's rotating people in and out, uh, and so it's a whole different situation from being working with the spacecraft and what have you. Uh, so I think what the most important thing to do is to find some way so that everybody feels on the same team like we used to back in those days, uh, as opposed to you come in and you just focus in one particular area. There may be a lot of things going on that I don't know about now, but when I look back on it and the way we did it then, I just feel fortunate that, that I lived when I did. I would say uh, on that question that one of the things that you really have to manage is time. Because, you know, in, 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 ter in terms of the Apollo program and every other one, there's just a flurry of activities and big things and small things come at you uh, in the same kind of, with the same, same kind of speed. And some things are more important than others. And uh, getting to the, getting to the uh, prioritization of what you should be dealing with and what you should be paying attention to uh, is something that everybody ought to be uh, tuned into because it's, it's where things get lost. I mean, the, uh, the answer for flying with oxygen in 16 pounds was, well, we did it on uh, Mercury and Gemini, and it was fine. And that was the closing argument uh, in retrospect, not the proper argument. Uh, but that would be something that might carry you through, not looking at it. So we got to be careful about uh, those kind of conditions where we think we have the answer when indeed uh, we really don't, and we ought to be open-minded about re-reviewing that. Well, <clears throat> there's one thing we did. We operated in those days at 5 PSI on 100% oxygen. Today, uh, in the space station, I think they're operating on kind of a regular atmosphere. It's, it's uh, and they're up at 14.7, 16 PSI. Uh, so it's a different kind of a business for survival. You still have to focus on the safety of it. 
but I don't think we're ever again going to go to 100% oxygen tests on the ground like we did then. You mentioned the uh, Gemini and Mercury programs, and Apollo was right on the heels of those programs that were very successful. Can you talk a little bit of maybe how that kind of set our safety culture and if that lulled us into a false sense of security? Well, one factor that I can think of is uh, while I worked a little bit on the engineering during Gemini, uh, from the time I got appointed to a, a crew on uh, the Apollo program, we depended on what was going on and we took it for granted that they were going to succeed at it. You know, the rendezvous, docking, uh, EVA, and we just counted on everybody succeeding in what they were doing. And that was, they were driven that way. I'm not sure anymore, I don't know what the psychological aspect is here uh, these days, but uh, in those days uh, we were damn glad that we had, everybody was a fighter pilot and had had that kind of experience because we expected losses and we expected to go on in spite of any losses. Thank you. And now I'd like you to give you each an opportunity to share anything else that you would like to with the audience, particularly with an eye towards the future of spaceflight. And we'll start, start with a recording from Frank. You know, I'm not presumptuous enough to make any suggestions because I don't have the knowledge or the information. But I would suggest that, uh, that people that are involved in the future take a look at how the Apollo program was run because I think it was a management program that was uh, very, very successful, after, particularly after the fire. Uh, before the fire, the Apollo program was sort of insular. Uh, it was, uh, as I mentioned, not integrated enough into the center, into Johnson Center. And a lot of the decisions were, when Joe Shea went right to George Miller in uh, Washington. Uh, and uh, that, that, that just, just doesn't work. I remember one time I, I had a long, conversation with Dr. Alexander Lippisch, who was a German scientist who designed the ME-163 rocket airplane. And he told me, he said, you know, in his German accent, you have to be make certain that uh, you don't run across what we did in, in Nazi Germany. And I said, what's that, Dr. Lippisch? He said, all the decisions had to be made in Berlin. He said, remember this? But then I was a major. Remember this, Major Borman, make the decisions at the lowest level where the ex information exists. Don't become incensed with the Berlin op complex. And I think, I think that's right, because if you look at the, the Apollo resurgence and the Apollo success, primarily due to the people at the center level, George Lowe, Dr. Von Braun, Dr. Gilruth, Chris Kraft, they, they're the ones that made it happen. And in our final minutes, gentlemen, do you have any closing remarks or any other lessons learned you'd like to pass on to the next generation? Well, I would uh, salute Frank in that regard. Uh, I talked about what the future would look like or today would look like had we canceled, uh, had we canceled Apollo at the wrong time. Uh, but when that was being debated, uh, Frank testified and said something like, Look, the spacecraft is ready, uh, the, the people are ready, the systems are ready, we've done everything we know how to do, uh, and we're asking for your permission to go fly. Now, do you have faith in us, or don't you? Period. And question mark. And um, uh, there was a little conversation like that, I suppose at the time and uh, they went away to think about it and lo and behold very soon the program Apollo program was back on full bore and Frank had something to do with that uh, and he was an effective articulator of what the situation was and what was at stake and uh, asked them if they had the confidence to go ahead because we did. Well I think uh, <clears throat> one of the major factors back in those days for Apollo is we were willing, we had the mental attitude to push through the next frontier, going to the moon. And today, you know, 40 years later, we're still uh, uh, benefiting from what was developed to do that. And a major factor in that, in that time was we were competing with Russia, of course. 
we need to find some other motivation to push the next frontier when and if it makes sense for humans to be going and doing that. Because when we landed on the moon in, in 1969, <clears throat> then uh, believe me, in the office, our general attitude is we'd probably be on Mars by 2000. Uh, they pushed some earlier dates, which we never believed, but by 2000, sure thing. Uh, I'm not sure when we're going to be able to go land on Mars, incidentally. And I think that our unmanned program out there is doing a wonderful job uh, considering. But we have to develop the technique to be able to do that if we want to keep our attitude correct to open the next frontier. Yeah. Personally, I think that we ought to be trying to develop a habitable spot on the moon to help develop all the things that we need to do to go to Mars. Gary, we have about a minute left. Uh, a couple of things I'd pass on is, and I believe we're following this nowadays, if we have some major accident or investigation, we uh, want to share those results. And there was, and most people don't realize, we had an ECS subsystem fire in a pure oxygen environment almost a year before the Apollo 1 fire. Uh, I was involved in the investigation. But that report that came out, the board report that came out was classified. I myself, even though I was involved in the investigation, never got a chance to see what my write-up was in regards to the wiring and never did actually see the actual report. And, uh, and when even you hear talk about Apollo 1, there's no mention that we had this situation occur that we could have had some lessons from the, uh, back then. And uh, the other thing is, uh, most for the Orion program nowadays to go back and study those lessons. I just just here uh, in the last three or four months, going through my files, ran across a report of a very close call we had on the Apollo 11 mission. Almost nobody knows about, and that includes the people involved in the Apollo 11 mission because the res results of that didn't come out too much later. And it had to do with the fact that the Apollo 11 crew reported, hey, we just saw the service module go by, okay? And this is during the entry corridor, which was a big shock to the people involved in the in, uh, debrief at that time. So they went off and ran an investigation looking at reports of aircraft monitoring and the radar and so forth. And sure enough, the service module was going into the same entry corridor as the command module. And that all the evidence before that and analysis had showed because of the active controller we had on there is supposed to be far and away and actually skip out and be nowhere clear close to that so don't forget when you jettison that service module that you make sure there's something there to make sure it's not going to hit you later thank you gary thank you <laughs> And gentlemen, thank you all for your time today and for your thoughtful answers to these very important questions. We will definitely take the information you gave us to heart as we move forward with the next uh, space program. And in closing, we'd like to have, share one final clip from Frank Borman about the significance of the sacrifice that the Apollo 1 crew made. Well, I think that everyone should recognize that the Apollo 1 disaster led to the changes in the spacecraft that made our program successful. And the three crews didn't die in vain. The three crew members didn't die in vain in that program. They were, they were uh, really pioneers as much as anybody that flew. And it was a, it was a tragedy uh, of the highest magnitude that was attributed to human error. And uh, it's just unfortunate that these brave people had to pay the ultimate price. Two quick things. Uh, first of all, uh, you can find the link to uh, the accident reports for Apollo 1, Challenger, and Columbia if you go to the SNMA website at JSC and look under Day of Remembrance. So I recommend if you have not seen those recently, you should take a look at those. Um, also, we're about to head over to the Astronaut Memorial Grove. I would like for the audience to remain seated so that the family and guests can get out first, and then the rest of us will head on over. 
Uh, but then close out, would, how about a, a round of applause for our excellent panel and thank you for their work. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you liked this uh, blast from the past. I guess we're going back to January 2017, but I thought it was a really good panel, especially because we were uh, kicking off the 50th anniversary of the Apollo program by revisiting this tragedy, and and really, it's it really does set the scene for how we fix things and uh, were able to land on the moon by the end of the decade. So we're right now in the middle of the 50th anniversary of many of the other Apollo missions, like we said, just completing Apollo 8 uh, recently here on the podcast. And then we have uh, uh, Apollo's, uh, I guess, at this point, 9, 10, and 11 to come as well as the other Apollo missions, but 11 is the big one. That's where we landed on the moon. If you want to know more about all the Apollo missions, go to nasa.gov slash specials slash Apollo 50th, and you can learn uh, all about the 50th anniversary celebrations and some information about the Apollo program. Otherwise, if you like the podcast part of NASA, go to nasa.gov slash podcasts. We have a lot of them now. Uh, you can follow us on social media, the NASA Johnson Space Center, or uh, just NASA, or many of the other different programs like the International Space Station, Orion, whatever you want, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform uh, to submit an idea for the show. Houston, we have a podcast. Just make sure to put it in the request so we can find it. Uh, the panel itself was recorded on January 24th, 2017. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, and Kelly Humphreys. Thanks to the panelists of the event, uh, Walt Cunningham, Gary Johnson, Glenn Lunny, and Frank Borman. Thanks to Nicole Mann for moderating it. And thanks to Ellen Ochoa and Mark Geyer for the introduction. Happy 50th anniversary to NASA's Apollo program. We'll be back next week. <laughs>